Hello and welcome. My name is Alonda Carter and I am the Recovering Hunbot. This is Season 1, Episode 9 of Hey Hun, You Woke Up. This podcast is brought to you on 10 different platforms, including iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. The video version is on YouTube. If you would like to support me as an anti-MLM content creator, the very best way you can do that is through my Patreon. There'll be a link to that in the description. I've made it super simple. There are three levels ranging from a dollar to $10 a month, and literally any amount helps. And if you are listening to me through Anchor, because this podcast also plays through that, that's where I upload it, you can contribute through listener support right there. I wanted to let you know that I am going to do a special giveaway for my patrons, and I did my very first unboxing in my Patreon. And let me tell you, it is rough, but hey, you know what? It was a lot of fun. And so the way this is going to work is that all my patrons are going to be eligible, but what will happen is, and I think I literally will use one of my husband's baseball caps, is that depending on your level, you will have more opportunities to be in the drawing and win the prize. And let me tell you what the prize is going to be. It's a little bit of a mystery right now because I don't have it. I signed up for Ipsy and I also signed up for BoxyCharm because there's a long story as to why my makeup is so horrifically old and it deals with basically goes back to the beginning of me getting into MLM because I was laid off, breast cancer, all of that. It's all related to it. And I haven't really gotten, you know, makeup and products, you know, on a regular basis or even on any kind of basis for a really long time. So I need to like replenish. And I figure what's going to happen when I get these boxes is there's going to be stuff that I love. And then there's going to be stuff that I just know is not going to be right for me for whatever reason. Maybe it's going to be a funky color that I know looks kind of wonkadelic on me. And that's not going to work. So whatever it is, I'm going to put it aside so that I can have some different items that would be in the giveaway. So it may take me a while to kind of, you know get together whatever I'm going to give away, but that is the plan. And how it will work is if you are at the white oak level, which is a dollar a month, then your name will go into the hat once. If you are at the braised bayou level, then your name will go into the hat twice. And if you are at the buffalo bayou level, which is at $10, that will be three times in the hat. So you see like it just goes up in tiers in terms of the opportunity for you to win a prize, and it will be shipped to anywhere within the continental U.S. So if you happen to be one of my patrons, which are, you know, you're located somewhere else, then you're just going to tell me a friend that you want me to ship it to, and I will ship it to your friend. So they'll get like an unexpected little gift. Today's guest is Peter Kahn. Now, I can't remember all the particulars about him, so I'm going to have to read it. So let me do that. He is the Associate Provost for Academic Affairs at MGH Institute of Health Professions. Prior to joining MGH, Peter was an anthropology faculty member at the University of Oklahoma. Peter received his PhD in anthropology at the University of California. Now, for those of you who have been watching me for a while, you know I have a background in anthropology. I have a master's in anthropology. And as I've been researching stuff, I've just, I've tried to see, are there any, Is there anything written about this from an academic standpoint? And I couldn't find much, but I came across Peter. So I contacted him and he graciously said, sure, you know, he'd be happy to talk to me. We chit-chatted on the phone and I invited him, you know, to be on the show. And so today we are going to just talk with him and you get to listen into that. And if you have any questions for Peter, just drop them below. I'm also going to put a link to both of the books that he has written. I can't recall the names off the top of my head, but it will be in the description. And now let's go ahead and join me and Peter having a chit chat. Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, I'd love for my audience to hear a little bit about your background, especially how you got involved in anthropology, because some of my audience knows, some of them doesn't, that I have a background in anthropology too. And, and I just love hearing people's stories. And as an anthropologist, you then became, I guess, fascinated. There was something about MLM that kind of like popped up into your bubble. So can you tell us about that, please? Sure. So I'd never heard of anthropology before I went to college. I was interested in people. I knew that much. I thought maybe 
government service, law, something like that, and took one of those introductory classes as a freshman just to fill out the gen ed requirements and found that I really resonated with the anthropological approach of starting at the ground level. When I was doing the intro political science or history, it was all very big picture, big movements, political leaders. And I thought, is that really true for how people really live? And in the anthropology classes, we were reading stories by people on the ground, living their lives. It seemed more true to me and, and more accurate to how I viewed the world. So I decided to major in anthropology, never thinking that would change my ultimate course, you know, maybe still law school, but at least all those books you have to read and papers you have to write would be interesting to me. And then as a uh, going into my senior year, I had an opportunity to do some ethnographic field work in Honduras. I, was, uh, I spoke Spanish, was interested in Latin America, and through that experience really got the research bug that I could go live in a community. In this case, it was in the Mosquito Coast of Honduras. It felt very romantic and glamorous, even though there was no running water and no electricity. Uh, but from the stories I collected, I wrote a senior thesis and what's normally a very arduous process turned into something very meaningful for me because I was writing about people I had met and the data were not ones that I you know, collected in a test tube. They were ones that emerged from the interaction of, of my presence and their conversation. Wow, that's so that, really that, interesting. That, that got me to anthropology, to the uh, second part about multi-level marketing. That was, uh, I started graduate school in 1997. And even then, anthropology was a little bit traditional in that <laughs> there was the, the rite of passage that in order to earn your stripes as an anthropologist, you had to go someplace relatively remote, preferably the developing world, do your year-long on-the-ground field work, and then come back and write. And uh, so I, I went to a rural Mexico. Uh, it's a town called Sinsun San. And in the anthropology world, it was well-known because my advisor had written about that community and his advisor before him had written about it. And it was a traditional sort of indigenous mestizo sort of mixed peasant community going through a lot of transition. And my topic was on religious change. Here was a community in the Catholic stronghold of Mexico that was starting to experience the growth of evangelical Protestant churches, primarily charismatic, Pentecostal, some Jehovah's Witnesses. And it was there while I was working on that project, which ended, being a, ended up being my dissertation and my first book, I noticed Avon ladies. They didn't appear in my research at all. That wasn't the topic. But when you're an anthropologist, you, like I say, your data come from your interactions. So when people invited me to meetings and the Avon ladies were sort of just as evangelical as the Protestants were, I, I went, I took notes and was able to um, go back to those when I finished the dissertation in the first book and thought, hmm, what's the next step? How can I continue this line of research? Wow, just a, <laughs> I can I can just imagine going to an Avon meeting as a man. I mean, that just Yeah, a man in Mexico. I remember the first one, Alanda. I was the town I was in was too small to really have any infrastructure for that. And it was the sister of the woman whose house I was staying in. She was a a spinster. And this was, she would occasionally maybe rent out a room if someone was coming through town or sell eggs from her chickens. But this was an additional economic activity. And she invited me to one of the meetings in the next town over. And I was, as I recall, this was now probably 1999, 2000. I was the only man uh, and obviously the only out foreigner there too. Uh, and I remember... Well, I, I thought it was going to be very um, technical. Here's the business. Here's the catalog. Here's how much this costs. Here's how the redemption works. But instead, they had an exercise where they put the names of all the women up on the wall, and they gave everyone post-it notes. And you were to write on the post-it note one adjective about that person. And then you put it, posted it next to their name on the wall. So when you go up and you see your, your name, you have this whole constellation of compliments. And I thought, wow, this is not the business that I expected at all. This is really about self-esteem. This is about 
community building. This is about uh, making people feel good uh, in a way that, that did recall some of the religious ceremonies I had been attending. And that was the, the real research. But this I tucked away to think, huh, there's something more here. There's an ideology. It's not just a job. It's not just a business. It's tapping into people's belief systems. And that's sort of code for an anthropologist to say, dig deeper. Well, that really sounds like an icebreaker for like training too. Because I mean, I, I have done something like that for training. So interesting that that was used. What was the rest of the meeting like? What else, you know, was talked mm. about in it? Do you recall? Well, you're making me, that was, to me, it was very out of context because I, I hadn't been part, I hadn't done my, my background research. Uh, I was brought there as a guest. Uh, I don't, I don't remember that specific one. And I, I didn't end up doing my long-term field work in that community because it was such a small town, really just sort of a sort of transportation hub for that region of, of Mexico, that when I decided to come back, and that was sort of starting in 2004, 2005, I spent a summer and then another nine-month stretch. I moved to Morelia, which is the capital city of that, that Western state, uh, because that's where all the multi-level marketing companies had a presence and where people from the hinterlands would, would travel for the trainings, for the big motivational events. And so I uh, wanted to be closer to the action. Uh, and then I started going to a lot more meetings there and saw, you know, every company has a different spin, but the sort of underlying premise was very similar. Interesting. Okay. Now I have to ask about this because, you know, I, I'm from a big city. I'm in the U.S. I'm in Houston. You know, so you are basically in rural Mexico. I mean, uh, so what is it like there in terms of the availability of goods and services, Internet accessibility and that sort of thing? How prevalent is that? Or is it like, you know, that doesn't exist? Things change very rapidly. But this part of Mexico, the state is called Michoacan. Uh, is a long-standing sending community to the United States. So there are almost sort of parallel communities in the suburbs of Chicago, in the suburbs of Tacoma, Washington. They have these sort of, I'm sure you probably see this in Texas, they're these sort of twin cities where so many people from one community have, have migrated and started their, their own families and invited more people. In fact, for my religion work, I was able to go to Tacoma, Washington, and participate in a religious celebration celebrating the patron saint of this town in Mexico. They completely recreated it in Washington State, and they made a copy of the image that's in the church in Mexico, and they paraded through the streets of Tacoma, and the, the poor priest there, who's, I can't remember, he was from like Poland somewhere, he, he just was... Uh, all of a sudden in this very Spanish-speaking parish and was uh, embracing all the traditions because it brought out so many people. So in that sense, there is a flow of goods and services because of remittances. At the time, there was no internet in that community. Of course, in the early 2000s, there wasn't a lot of internet uh, in a lot of places. But when I moved to Morelia, uh, again, it was a few years later, so there's more penetration of internet. Uh, but it's also, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's a, it's a tourist destination. It's got beautiful colonial architecture. It's got an airport. Uh, and uh, there is some industry there. It's still primarily agricultural. But I remember the, um, the chain of Mexican cinemas had their headquarters in Morelia. So you have department stores and you have uh, modern uh, uh, amenities. There are even some sort of U.S. fast food franchises there. Not very popular, but you, you recognize a lot of the names and uh, it feels like a city just without the skyscrapers. Okay. Yep. Thank you. That paints a picture and everything. So what happened when you were like, okay, now I can focus on this and let's look at the multi-level marketing that's happening in this area. How did that occur? What was that? You know, did you just decide one day, like, okay, I'm going to go do this? How did you come up with the research? Did you put out a proposal for something? What went on? Right. So I had done a, a, a summer as a sort of test case to see what was happening uh, in this area. And what was it? A book-length project. And that's sort of in, in my faculty world, that's the currency. 
Uh, and I, I was convinced there was enough there. So I did go back to, I was at the University of Oklahoma as a faculty member in the Department of Anthropology and wrote a proposal and submitted it to a foundation which funds anthropological research. And I was fortunate enough to receive the grant and that bought me out of my teaching, let me leave for about nine months and fund my time in Mexico. And I moved to Morelia. I knew one person, someone I had met in the previous round of research in the smaller community. And uh, I asked her, is there a place to stay in your neighborhood? Can you show me around? Uh, and she did. And I started walking the streets, uh, trying to you know, find a way in because you need an entree. But luckily, people in Mexico, I think it was, it was true then, I, I think it's still true today, uh, are less suspicious of strangers. And certainly being a gringo, that made me seem less threatening. Uh, and there was, I think it was by chance, the neighborhood where this friend had helped me find a place to live uh, was near the headquarters of several, or I should say, sort of distribution centers for several multi-level marketers. And you can tell, because you, you walk by and you see, it's, it's not uh, like a retail store that's open to the public where you see you know, big parking lots and people going in, coming out. There were um, people coming up uh, and there, I could see there are counters and there were shelves with products, uh, but there are no prices. It's, it's not like a, a checkout. Uh, so I sort of went into one and asked some questions. Uh, and they said, you know, we're just a distribution center. You have to go through one of our members. And very, now I see very cleverly, one member of this, this one company they ended up focusing on had situated her training center directly across the street from the distribution center. I think not suspecting there'd be anthropologists walking in, but knowing that people had to come from all over the city and the state to load up on their product at this place and that they could combine it with a visit to her office. And that she ended up being the main character in the book I wrote, using her as a vehicle to tell the story of the entire industry in Mexico and as the story goes on, she left Mexico and to other parts of Latin America. So it was a bit of by chance that I discovered that first company. And then once you're in it, you start meeting other people and they tell you, well, I used to be a member of this one, or uh, I, have you thought about this? So I, they started pointing me towards others, which I went to visit, but uh, didn't make the primary focus of my research. Interesting. So, okay, so this woman had a training center. So that's where her distributors would go or, you know, her downline would come to her to be able to learn from her. Exactly. And it was an anthropological dream because there was a fixed schedule. <laughs> oh, <People> wow. <laughs> it was, oh, I'd have to look this up now, but it was like Monday and Wednesdays at six. And uh, then on the Saturday mornings, uh, those were the, the trainings for the people who already enrolled. And then Saturday mornings, they would have information sessions for people who were interested in joining where you could bring a friend or you could refer someone to come uh, to hear the spiel. And it was a little sort of front office. And that was staffed. She had hired uh, like a receptionist. And uh, that was staffed all the time. And if people sort of wandered in. She, she could give them information. Uh, but then there was sort of an accordion door and in the back was the meeting room with uh, sort of the PowerPoint projector and some rows of chairs and a few demonstration tables and shelves with the products. This was a nutritional supplement company. Uh, and those, so on sort of the Mondays and Wednesdays and Saturdays, those would be filled with people. And it became very social too. So I could use that as sort of markers in the calendar and just join the audience and take notes uh, and then stop by during the week as well to sort of see what was going on. And that's when I did more of the sort of uh, deep questioning, sort of uh, reconstructing her history, the sort of the financial piece of it, some of her motivations, and then just the sort of the family drama too. She was a single mom, uh, and during my time, she sort of met a man and how that integrated into the family. And I ended up becoming the um, godparent of the child they had. Oh, how beautiful. That yeah. is just lovely. Do you still maintain contact with her? I do. And um, unfortunately, lately, it's been mostly social media, WhatsApp and, and text messaging. This part of Mexico 
has uh, really ex has experienced some very disturbing trends in violence as part of the the drug trade. When when I was there, you heard whispers of it. It was more down what they called the, the hot country, the sort of the growing region that was more towards the Pacific Ocean. We were up in the mountains, and it was cool and as the government capital. But since then, there's been um, more and more almost sort of indiscriminate violence, uh, which it doesn't affect the day-to-day. -day. People obviously still live there, but it doesn't get a lot of international tourism. So that's deterred me. And then my career has taken a turn where I'm now an academic administrator. So my research is based in settings of higher education. I don't go back to, to field work sites anymore. Uh, but I do send send the, the gifts for the days of the, the three kings in January, which is where in the Mexican tradition, when you give the gifts after Christmas. And, um, but by now he's so big, I sort of forget what size clothes he wears. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, having people come at a schedule, I mean, absolutely. I can't imagine a more perfect setting to do, you know, a studying of a culture because it's like, it's right there. It's like, you don't have to go look for it. You can just like, okay, I show up at 10 o'clock and boom, there it is. You know, I mean, that's just amazing that you literally stumbled across that. <laughs> Yeah, and that is, I ha had a sort of innate intellectual curiosity in what was going on, and particularly why here, why now? What is the larger story that tells? It wasn't just about Mexico, but I, because I knew this was happening around the world. Uh, so that drove a lot of it. But then you're right, the pragmatics is what makes it possible to study because you have to get information somehow and to be able to tell the story. And those were very useful sort of tent poles in the week. And then I could meet people get uh, to follow up during the week with them at their homes in different neighborhoods uh, or work with uh, different companies to, to sort of test is what I see in this one company uh, truly representative of the, the larger picture. Now, I'm finding this very interesting because, you know, when I was in Beachbody, I mean, one of the things that is, I think, prevalent in all of them is that sense of community. What I have found and what many people that I know have experienced is that it's a it's a fake community because as soon as you start questioning anything or, you know, or you leave, then people turn on you and all of a sudden you are the bad guy and you know, you're negative and it's just, it's just really rips apart. People that you thought were your friends are just gone because they were only your friend in the name of if you could help them or if you had the same belief system that they did, meaning you were going to be able to have success through multi-level marketing. Is there any kind of similarity like that in what you found? What did you discover? The vocabulary of family certainly permeates a lot of the rhetoric of these companies. And that, that's really how they differentiate themselves from the, the nine to five job that you you have the autonomy for one thing, you sort of set your own hours, be your own boss, but also you're part of a, a loving community. There are people who support you, you go to for help. There's a real contrast with what you imagine uh, either in the sort of a manufacturing job or an office job, which really don't exist in these parts of Mexico for most people without the right connections. Uh, so that was certainly a part of the appeal was that you, you're really joining um, a group of people who care about you, they, they had a lot of fun. They'd take these bus rides to bigger cities when there'd be sort of large annual events with the founder of the company or sort of sort of key uh, figures who'd be giving talks. And you know, I, I joined them and it was like a big rolling party. People were laughing. You have all the in-jokes because you have the same products. In this case, because it's consumable, they were these sort of vitamin powders that you dissolve in bottles of water you have a very visual reminder uh, of the product and you can see who's consuming what and the colors of their bottle indicates what they're taking and they're swapping recipes of how they're using the products to uh, tend to different health problems. So that I thought was very real and people really benefited from that. Uh, the sort of people who leave the organization, as you say, what was telling to me is when there were a few of those people I did follow, they had internalized the rhetoric so thoroughly that they blamed themselves. And they would say, they were very, very reluctant to criticize the company or their upline or anything external. They would say, well, you know, my, my mother has been sick and I really had to attend to her. So I was sort of letting the business go or 
uh, I just really didn't give my all. This is not a good time, or I was distracted. You know, they would turn it on themselves. So I, I didn't see that sort of, or at least they didn't perceive it as they were fake friends or uh, just sort of a surface level connection with the members of their the business, uh, because they, uh, in some cases, did maintain some relationships, particularly because these are they're cities, but the people that they would uh, I think maybe because of the size of Mexican families uh, or the the connections of the Catholic Church, where there is a lot of God-parenthood ties and people in your parish, they, they do end up seeing each other again, whether it's your butcher who you had started selling products to. He doesn't go on to uh, continue in the company, but you still see him. And I, I thought people were, were very friendly to each other. But certainly your larger point of leveraging the language of family that was key in towards making people attracted and then uh, retain their connections to the company. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that they blame themselves because, you know, across all MLMs that I have studied and all the people that I've spoken to is that's what you're taught to do is that you are the problem. It's not the structure of the organization you have the problem because you didn't try hard enough. You did basically it, you didn't do enough is what it boils down to. So it sounds like very much that same kind of sentiment is taught to people is uh, a parallel in, you know, culturally that they will take on the blame themselves because they're not going to blame anyone else or the organization. Would you say, say that's a, a fair assumption? Absolutely. And it's the flip side of the, the uh, selling point, which is that success is yours alone too, that you control it. You don't depend on anyone else. And it is particularly stark in Mexico uh, where corruption is very common. I remember speaking to members of different MLMs and sort of saying, you know, like, why this path? And there, I mean, they sell places at the university. It's not that you apply, you show your grades. It's do you give a bribe to the right person? They sell teaching positions in public schools, which is a, a good, steady government job, but you can't just apply for it. These teaching roles are handed down from family to family. Uh, you inherit it from your parent who was in the, the union, and you can. I knew people who rented out teaching positions. To, they weren't teachers themselves, but they sort of owned this slot in the public school, and they'd give it to someone else and collect rent on it. They would, so part of their salary would come back to these people. So it's, it's not an open system where you can just apply for a job. So this idea that you're free from all of that, it doesn't, the other thing in Mexico, and I don't know if it's still true, you could see on retail establishments, a sign that says, um, help wanted must be female 18 to 22. Good presentation, which was code for physically attractive. So right away, if you're indigenous, if you have darker skin, you're not going to be seen as having good presentation. If you're a man, that's not an option for you. And so this promise of you don't need to have a connection or palanca, as I call it, a lever. You don't need to have uh, a degree that's been bought and you know, <laughs> stolen. Uh, you can do it yourself. So when things don't go well, you have only yourself to blame. But that's not what you're thinking about when you're trying to get your business started. Wow, all of that is incredibly fascinating of how all of that works. So uh, do you know on average how long somebody would stay within one of these MLMs? I, uh, I know there is very high turnover in the, the research that, that I did, which is now a bit outdated. My book was, I think, in 2011, uh, was there's sometimes over 100% turnover, which means that everyone who joins leaves, and then those people who replace them also leave before the year is up. It, wow. it, it turns out a lot of people. Now that said, I spoke to folks who were not, they were interested in being consumers. They wanted, they, a friend had given them the product, and whether it's nutritional supplements or cosmetics or there was some clothing, you know, they, they wanted access to that. They didn't really want to do the business. So they're sort of half-hearted. And once you get to the point where you've asked all of your immediate family members and neighbors, there is sort of a natural hurdle. If you're going to keep going, 
you've got to start reaching out to strangers. And if you see like the, the, the person who enrolled me, who rented a spot with a training center and the weekly schedule, and that is a whole nother level of involvement. And most people aren't prepared to do that or don't have the capital to set up um, a, a storefront like that. Uh, and so a lot, I attribute a lot of the turnover to that, people who get interested and then they sort of peter out, not that they you know, fail spectacularly. Uh, and then there are others who really do see this as an income generating opportunity and are just continuously frustrated. And they think, okay, this wasn't it. Let me try the next pitch. Maybe it's the next one. Maybe it's the next one. And that it's, um, if it's not their own lack of skill holding them back, well, maybe it's the product, maybe, um, or this area is saturated. You know, this company has already been here. Let me try this new company and I'll get in on the ground floor and have that advantage. So there's that type of turnover as well. Fascinating. Because, you know, it's very interesting when you bring up the, you know, like the storefront, because, you know, things are different here, you know, obviously. But I would say having the person I originally signed up under with Beachbody was, quote, higher ranking. But then when she left, I was put under basically the person with the largest team in the entire company. And I mean, I'm talking like absolutely massive. However, there's still a lot of people that come and go, come and go, come and go. And with that, like for instance, one of the things that I tried to do initially, and of course I had no idea this was a terrible idea when I tried this, is I joined something that's like basically a lead generation type company that like sets you up with your own customer resource management system. And, you know, you're going to teach you this stuff, but they really only teach everything very surface. And I remember when I went through their like online curriculum with my background in instructional design, I'm like, well, basically I could read an article on the internet. I don't, you know, and their test construction, I was like, well, this is poorly worded. So I'm, you know, I'm tearing <laughs> it apart in that way because I can't help myself. But when it came to like, you know, now you're going to do Facebook ads and stuff. Well, I would be up against someone much like this woman who had the training center. I'd be up some, against somebody with much deeper pockets than what I have. And so it's like, you know, you're set up to fail to begin with, unless you're someone who got in early, who had a following. Cause a lot of these people will have some sort of following in some way. It could be someone who, um, won a beauty contest in some way, like, you know, let's just say, I don't know, Miss Arizona, you know, because that has happened. Someone who was a Spanish soap opera star, um, someone who was married to a professional baseball player. I mean, they've got some leverage there. Someone who um, worked within like an entire school district and did something like basically people that are well connected in some way they're going to have a much easier time than someone like me. It's like, I had just been laid off. I didn't have this massive network. I didn't have kids in school, not a member of a church. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. there's nothing. And there's a lot of people like me that are just regular people and they don't have those networks. And the people who do get involved and do quote succeed, I have to do my air quotes. <laughs> um, it's like they get so mentally invested in the organization and in the MLM story of anybody can succeed. And otherwise there's going to be cognitive dissonance. They can't believe that what they're doing is actually going to be harmful to other people. And the other people are spending thousands of dollars that's benefiting them and not benefiting the people that are spending money. So I definitely see a parallel in terms of someone who is able to have this training center, have these meetings, do all this stuff. And then the people who sign up underneath that person, they can't replicate that. Right. And, and that is the flip side of the pitch is that anyone can do it. There's no barriers to entry. And often the sort of the starter kit or the first batch of product is very affordable. At least that's, you believe, then you, you find out more. Uh, and so that, that does encourage people. There's, you don't need to pass a test. You don't need to have a certain uh, educational level. And in, in Mexico, certainly uh, uh, college is, is difficult to attain. Uh, and so th this does appeal. What they don't tell you is those sort of glittering stars up on the stage. They are working full time, even though the, the 
positive is that you set your own schedule. You don't have to sort of punch a clock. But to get to that level of success in a company, you need to approach it like a traditional company or a business. And as you say, many of them do have special uh, talents uh, or they certainly have a business uh, education or some sort of natural gift for understanding how these systems work that it, it really does help to have a college degree when you're uh, involved in these organizations and it helps to have a network. I uh, musing on uh, when I was doing this research, I mentioned I was a faculty member at the University of Oklahoma and OU is known widely for its football team. Mm -hmm. And in the, while I was doing this research, I was back on campus and in the student newspaper, they had a story about how the wives, of the football coaches were in an MLM hierarchy parallel to the male, their husbands. So the head coach, his wife, I want to say it was Mary Kay or Ava. I can't remember which company it was, um, but the head coach had uh, a wife and she was the head marketer. The assistant coach's wife was the next in line. Then the you know assistant offensive coach was the next in line. And all the way down, she had sort of organized the wives of the coaches into her own network. And I mean, that's certainly a level of uh, access and prestige that not many people have being the wife of the head coach of a major college football team. Oh, absolutely. And I can see that. I mean, if she did Facebook lives and stuff, I'm sure people would be like watching all of that. But then if you sign up underneath her, like if I signed up underneath her, I'm not going to get that same draw. So it's, you know. Right. And I do wonder, like I say, my research, the internet marketing side was still nascent. And, and I, I haven't continued the work now since, you know, the 2010, 2011 or so. Uh, and I, I do know from, from friends uh, still involved in Mexico and elsewhere that the internet is the, the major tool for getting the word out. But I do wonder, I would be curious as a researcher, how that's changed the dynamic because many of these products rely on the transformation story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I either took this and I lost weight or I put this on and it, it made me more beautiful or this, I sold this and I got more wealth. And it's hard. How do you uh, have that sort of conversion experience through the internet? How do you give someone a sample? How do they taste it? How do they put it on themselves in a way that makes them think, oh yeah, you're right. This does have some special quality that I can't get you know, on the open market. So I imagine, I know um, Herbalife uh, in the U.S. has has borrowed from some of the Mexican traditions, setting up nutrition clubs, which mm-hmm. are little sort of breakfast places where people will make you a shake and you can take it and go. Uh, because until you have developed your own story of conversion, I use that in the sort of um, that theoretical sense, that into your your story of uplift uh, or of change, then you're not really hooked. You're, you're not, you don't really have your, your narrative that you can then share with others. And it's all about sharing and spreading it wider and wider. Yeah. Well, I would imagine that their use of the internet, you know, social media, like Instagram and Facebook, much like, you know, MLMs that, you know, I have been watching and everything. I am not bilingual. I would, I would love to see what they're doing. I, it, it would be fascinating to me to be able to pull it up and select, are they doing Facebook lives? You know, what's going on? Are they selling things on lives? Like some of the stories I've done recently, what is going on here? But I would think it would be much like, kind of like how, we used social media before there was even Facebook lives of being able to put up um, transformation photos. And it might even be something as simple as 30 days. I mean, that's what Beachbody did. And there's before and afters. Now nobody wants to see that stuff because everybody knows as soon as you do that, it's an MLM and, you know, Karen, we're not interested in that. Thank you very much. Sort of a thing. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I would imagine that they did something similar to that, you know, um, Instagram will be littered with, you know, different things as well as, as addition to that would be lifestyle. They may do some things like what happens here, which, you know, you see people putting on these fabulous lives, but those fabulous lives 
typically aren't real because they might be sitting in a rental car or they might be in the car in a parking lot somewhere that's a friend's car or they may have gone to an open house of some big fancy house and taking photos there it's not really what's going on necessarily i'm not saying that everybody's lying but there's certainly this um this projection of like this is what you can have too if you join me sort of a thing. So I think they'd probably leverage that in some way. Do you think that would be fair? Um, My contention is that at root, all of these dynamics are the same around the world. In fact, you can trace the lineage. The company that I was focused on primarily is called OmniLife, which was started by one of the first Mexican distributors of Herbalife. He was on the the U.S.-Texas border. And then you can go back to Mark Hughes, who founded Herbalife. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you can trace all these back to, to Amway and to that uh, lineage, and they all have the same set of strategies. And I mean, reading that sort of early Amway literature, sort of fake it till you make it, I mean, a lot of ostentatious displays of wealth. And I saw that uh, consistently throughout the people I was uh, interviewing and living with that you, you I remember that the woman I, I focused on, you know, she uh, leased a BMW, which is quite a flashy car in central Mexico, uh, but she wrote it off as a business expense because you have to project the level of success that you are preaching to your followers and that they need to see you to be successful in order for them to feel motivated to have, to believe they can get the same outcomes. And that whole, I mean, it, it is a performance. You're, which is not to say it's fake because, you know, I would contend you know, when I go to work, I work at a, a university, you know, I put on, I'll put on a bow tie and I'll put on a blazer and I look, I play the role of the academic because I want people to believe who I am. And her way of doing it is just a little flashier than mine, but it's the, the same idea of having to embody the ideal that you're holding up. So people believe you. Interesting. So, um, do you have any data on like, like net profit versus gross? I mean, you know, what, what, what were people spending money on and, you know, were they in the red? Were they in the black? I mean, do you have information on that? Yeah, I, I was able for this one family in particular, I got very close to this distributor and her parents who she had subsequently recruited and they had become very high up in the company. And I was able to, peer into their financials. As you can imagine, it's very convoluted. And there are a lot of um, expenses that they don't count as such. So their, their time, they don't mm-hmm. really uh, calculate that. Uh, and then their own personal consumption of products, which they need both for legitimacy and in this company, you had to maintain your certain monthly point totals just mm-hmm. to get access to the, the downline residuals. Uh, so uh, as you can imagine, almost no one is making money. Particularly, there, there may be a lot of money flowing through the network, uh, but it's only the corporate headquarters that's guaranteed to be left with any profit. So they would get some of these people higher up, would get you know, very impressive checks. And I was uh, a faculty member at a state university in the United States, but I couldn't compete with some of the money that was coming in monthly. But that said, I didn't have to Lisa BMW, I didn't have to go on these trips to, to constantly drum up more business and um, all the, the gas and all of renting these event halls in different cities. Uh, so in, in the end, you think, are, are they breaking even just sort of maintaining the look uh, in order to generate more people to replace the, the holes that are happening when others drop out? I didn't take it, uh, I didn't go directly to, therefore it's a pyramid scheme and it's evil. Uh, I thought some people uh, maybe are content just breaking even. That I didn't experience, I I know certainly in the United States, there's there's more capital to go around and people really do get in the hole for thousands of dollars and it's devastating to families, and it, it does feel more like, like a scam. These amounts, I think, were, were lower for the average person. Uh, and there's a sort of fatalism, though, if I didn't 
you know, lose money here. I would have tried to open up my own business. I would have lost money there. That this is just all how the capitalist game is played. Interesting. Well, I mean, I can definitely understand that with the cultural differences between the U.S. and Mexico and with the fact that, um, you know, they're in a closed system versus we're in, you know, open market in terms of applying for things. And they're like what you described in terms of, well, somebody owns a, a faculty position per se. I can definitely see that this opportunity to create your own business at a low startup cost would be massively, massively appealing because there's not a lot of other opportunities for them. And so, yes, I do want that dream. I do want to, you know, create that life. And I, it does make sense to me also that it's like, well, that's not really happening, but hey, I've got these products that I kind of like. And so maybe people just kind of stay in just consuming the products and then just forget about even, you know, attempting to build anything because that's not going to happen. Yeah. Is that something that, that happens as well? Yeah. And then that's sort of the, the, the picture that I'm trying to paint. Uh, and I, I don't want to uh, overextend the, the differences between Mexico and the United States, because I, I do feel, particularly with all of the, the economic situation in the United States, there, there is very low unemployment. But what are the jobs that people can get, particularly if you don't have advanced degrees or you don't have a very specialized set of skills uh, that they may be you know, very physically demanding um, or they they certainly lack that uh, that ideology that I first saw back with the Avon ladies if a lot of uh, right when we say regular companies sort of non MLM companies they also try to infuse that sort of family spirit I mean you go to an Amazon warehouse and they're trying to you know they don't call them in workers anymore more their associates or their team members and they want to create that same sort of community in order to build affinity and to prevent people from leaving but that doesn't stop them from making them work very hard and put themselves in a lot of physical duress uh, and and so the the specifics of the mexican context yes are different but this idea of what options are available to me particularly if i'm enamored with this idea of success in a material sense, to really burst out of the working class into the middle or upper middle class. There's the, the way that I did it, which is, you know, I had a very privileged background and I went to brand name schools and I studied very hard and got good grades and had lots of advantages as a white man going through and getting promoted. Uh, that's a very narrow path, not available to a lot of people. So if you go the, uh, the other route, do you work in a fast food place? Do you uh, join a company at the lower ranks and hope maybe they promote you? I, mean, I can see why this seems like a particularly appealing fast track towards the type of success that I mean, we've all been indoctrinated to want. And certainly living in this country, we need because the rent is high. <laughs> that it is. That it is. Yeah, I mean, all of that, that. But at least the thing with a, quote, traditional, me and my air quotes, traditional job, you are guaranteed a particular wage. You are guaranteed, you know, the um, benefits that you get. Unlike with MLM, you got to pay to play. That's, that's the bottom line. You're paying to play. And hoping that if you keep on playing, eventually it's going to pay off, which as you've already said, and as my audience knows, very few people are actually making any kind of money. And the ones that are making money, they're making it because people keep on coming into the system. Yeah, yeah. And I, this reminds me back, um, shortly after my, my book came out, I got a call, from, I was living in the US again, and got a call from a hedge fund, a US-based hedge fund. Uh, they were unnamed. They were looking for an expert uh, in multi-level marketing to help them with some background information on an investment they wanted to make. It was unnamed, but I had a sort of hour-long phone call with this young analyst who, was, who had read my book and was you know, incredibly informed. And he was trying to decide uh, whether to invest in Herbalife as you know, this big hedge fund. Uh, and he kept harping on, but the people don't make any money. And I, I said, no, almost none of them makes money. And his conclusion was, therefore, this company is a high, um, is a sort of not a very good investment 
we should not put any money into it. And I said, well, not necessarily. I mean, that's a very traditional way, sort of Western way of looking at things that if it's not producing a profit for the workers down below, that it's going to wither away and die eventually. I said, there are always people with dreams. There are, there's always going to be people who want to hear this story and who are seduced by the images in a positive way because it gives them something to hope for. And if it doesn't work out, as we know it won't for nearly all of them, there's, there, there's still that connection they had. There's still that uh, hope that it gave them. And that just because the numbers don't crunch, it doesn't mean this company is going to go defunct. So the call ended. And I don't know, maybe six months later, a big news story about the hedge fund in the United States, I think it was Pershing Capital, which shorted Herbalife. Mm -hmm. Now, they never said the name, but I imagine that was part of that um, research. And you know, they took the exact opposite lesson from, <laughs> I'm sure they talked to a lot of other people, but my point was, no, this company is not necessarily going to tank just because people aren't making money, that it's giving them something different than money. And it, it's always going to be appealing to someone. And from what I, I've heard, from the, the news I've followed, um, Herbalife has not tanked. It hasn't, their stock hasn't gone to zero. And that hedge fund lost a lot of money shorting their stock. Yeah, absolutely. Betting on zero. Yeah. Right. And as you were telling that, I, I, that, it was, that was coming to my mind. It was like, it's got to be that because that, that's the one that is, you know, most people in the anti-MLM world, you know, know about is that. I don't know of another one. Well, I, I guess they're very, I don't, I'm not a sort of economics professor, but it does strike me there are very few of these companies that are publicly traded in that yes. way that you could take a, a short on their position. And most of them are very closely held. They don't want to divulge any information that being publicly traded would require them to do. Because yeah. it, it's totally embarrassing. And you know, any journalist, and you see these stories every so often, will do the big expose and you get a hold of the numbers and it, it turns out that 0.001% are making more than $100 a year. And that becomes the story uh, from, and I think from a financial point of view, of course, that's terrible. People are investing time and money and effort and getting very little material in return. From the anthropological side, there may be more to it. They may be getting other things back that could satisfy them in the moment, uh, that, that could help them further along in their, their dream, if not in their reality. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to wrap this up and then we'll talk for um, a moment. Thank you so much for joining me and Peter as we discussed how, you know, MLM fits into Mexico, because, you know, this is not an issue that is just occurring within the U.S. It is worldwide. And hearing Peter, it just really made me start thinking about things a bit differently, specifically about how MLM can fit into the social fabric of people's lives. I hope to have Peter come back on in the future, so make sure that you hit subscribe if you are watching the video and give the video a thumbs up. Also, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what you were thinking, you know, as Peter and I were having our discussion. And remember, change starts now.